Hey, go ahead, turn to Acts 24. Acts 24, we're winding down here in our Acts series. Just have three more weeks. Acts 24, if, uh, if you have a device, uh, you wanna go to the ESV version of whatever uh, app you're using, you'll be able to follow along with us. Hey, uh, for those of you watching on the live stream, uh, I just wanna acknowledge you, wanna say that we still miss you, hope you're staying safe. We look forward to uh, the day when you get to join us again. Well, one thing that the book of Acts has been showing us, if, you, if you've noticed, is that there will be people both inside and outside the church that we will have trouble with, right? We see this with Paul. He's constantly running into issues and concerns and trouble. Um, and this kind of trouble can be all over the map, right? Um, it can be theological, it can be political, it can be cultural, it can be personal in nature, which can result in confrontations which lead um, oftentimes to the kind of painful disillusion or the, the threat of disillusion of relationships. And this is unfortunately all part of the church that Jesus is building, right? Here we are. Um, which includes, by the way, broken people as part of the construction process. So never do we sort of back away and say, hey, Jesus, that, that church that you're not building with all those broken people over there, I'm so happy that you're building it with all the together people like me. I mean, the reality is that the church that Jesus builds is with broken people as part of that process. And often what we find is that when we, we have these confrontations or we have these disagreements or we have these misunderstandings like we see Paul have constantly, uh, what we'll find is that something is lurking beneath the surface usually that is motivating someone's misunderstanding or someone's mistreatment of another person. And, and we know this um, really from the life of Jesus. Remember when Pilate was questioning Jesus in Matthew 27, um, he even knew, this, this Roman official, he knew that the people accusing Jesus of blasphemy, that they were doing it uh, from envy. They, they didn't really have any substantiation for the, the charges they were laying against him. And because Jesus had gained the trust of people, and they were people who had been under this heavy yoke uh, uh, that the religious leaders of the time had placed on them. And these religious leaders with Jesus now on the scene, they were losing their influence, right? And so what's notable in that in regards to what we're going to be looking at in Acts 24 today is not only what Jesus says in response, if we go back to the Gospels, to his accusers, but it's how Jesus response, right? And so what we'll see today is that the way Paul responds to his accusers, it mirrors the way Jesus responded to his. And in fact, the very hope Paul had in God gave him the kind of heart to respond to his accusers in a very cheerful and reasonable manner. When's the last time you saw somebody on social media respond in a cheerful and reasonable matter about something? I mean, maybe, I don't know, never since the invention of Facebook, right? Um, I'm being a little dramatic here, right? But this couldn't matter more for you and for me today in the way that for some reason, all of this grace and all of this peace that has been given to us by God to shape our hearts for some reason, as soon as we find an issue 
or as soon as we find something that isn't totally in line with where we're at or where we think or perceive someone is at, for some reason, all the cheerfulness that God has given to us, all the hope and the trust that we have in his word, somehow it just goes out the window. And so Paul, what he does here in Acts 24 is he gives us such an incredible example of what it looks like when our hope in God shapes our, our tone and our testimony and our sense of timidity, right? And that's what we're gonna read about today. So let's pick up verse one, chapter 24. And this is now Paul uh, still in custody, getting ready to come before Felix, the governor, to make another defense. And this is what it says, verse one. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Verse 5, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Verse nine, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. 
At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. So Tertullius accuses Paul here as he's bringing him before the governor of three crimes. What were the three crimes? Well, they were stirring up riots. They were being this Christian ringleader, as he described it, and then profaning the temple. Now, even as a Christian, Paul could have been guilty of those three crimes, but he gives a defense by explaining, number one, that there was no evidence that he had stirred up riots in a crowd or in the temple or in the synagogue. It just wasn't true. Secondly, he confesses that, that he, he was what they call a ringleader of sorts, but that his beliefs were in line with worshiping the God of the Jews that they were in line with keeping the laws written by the prophets. They were in line with believing in the resurrection of the just and unjust, something that the Pharisees would have believed in. And then three, he points out that he didn't profane the temple, but was found there doing a purification ritual, presenting alms and offerings without stirring up any trouble, right? So what's significant is how Paul seems to refute the accusations, not necessarily with what he uses and the words he uses, but the way that he speaks in a very controlled and truthful and reasonable and cheerful manner. Do you, do you catch that? Because we don't want to miss that last part when he says, I give you a cheerful defense, Felix, because a cheerful defense, it indicates something, right? And for Paul, it indicated some things about the hope that had enabled him to respond the way he did, by the way, with his life on the line, right? So the question that we wanna ask and answer this morning is, what are some key things that a hope in Jesus will transform in your life and in my life the same way that it transformed Paul's life? And the first thing that we learn from Paul here is that his hope in Jesus transformed his tone so your hope in Jesus, my hope in Jesus will actually transform not just the words, but the way that we speak the words that we do, because it matters not only what we say, but how we say what we say. And so we see here when Tertullius approaches the governor, he uses a bunch of flattery, because if you know something about Felix, it wasn't how Tertullius described him at all. He was not somebody who wanted to work well with the Jewish people on any level. In fact, he'd been a burden to them. He'd been a dangerous person to them. But Tertullius comes in using flattery and he used flattery to try to gain some favor from Felix. But Paul does something different here when he gets the chance to speak to Felix, right? He chooses to respond truthfully. He chooses to respond cheerfully. And in that, we see such an amazing contrast between somebody who's trying to gain the favor of, of an elected official so that they can sort of uh, continue to promote their evil deeds and to promote taking down an innocent man. Whereas Paul, somebody who is defending himself, um, immediately does it with a tone that is both truthful and cheerful. 
And what a contrast that is. What a contrast that is between uh, Paul and the world. Because the world uses flattery, right? We see that as a pattern. The world uses flattery to gain favor, to gain position. But the church is called to something else. Like we're not called to those kind of tactics, right? The church is called to what James uh, tells us in James 3.17, peaceable, being peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And he says, when we do this, when we operate out of a heart that has that kind of hope in Jesus, this is what he says, a harvest of righteousness will be sown in peace by those who make peace. So by our very tone, we are able to establish sometimes a peaceful dialogue, regardless of what happens on the heels of it, right? And that's what Paul is doing right here. So it's our hope in God, just like it was Paul's hope in Jesus that transforms our tone, the very way that we interact with people, not just our words, but how we say the words that we're saying. And you know, when that happens, when we have a heart and, a, and, and eyes that are set on Jesus with the way that we interact with one another, what's gonna happen is instead of just being argumentative, we can be peaceable. Instead of being abrasive, we can be gentle. Instead of being manipulative, like Tertullius is here, we can be reasonable. Because your tone tells a person something about the tunefulness of your heart. That's what your tone says about what's going on inside, right? So it's kind of like an instrument in a lot of ways for those of you who are musicians. And if you're not, just bear with me here. But you can play the right notes on an instrument. But if it's out of tune, it doesn't matter what you play, right? It just doesn't matter what you play. So I was at a Christmas concert years ago and there was a bell choir. Who knows what a bell choir is? Ah, three of you, which is why we don't have a bell choir here. Um, but they were playing Carol of the Bells. They were so out of tune that my brother-in-law, who was sitting behind me, leans forward, puts his head over my shoulder and says, what's the song they're playing right now? And I said, I think it's Carol of the Bells, right? But it didn't matter what they played because it sounded like chaos because they were out of tune, and that's what it sounds like when we're trying to communicate something with our tone not being shaped by our hope in Jesus. In fact, Paul warned the church in Rome uh, when he said in Romans chapter 16, 17, this is, what he, this is what he wrote. He said, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. He said, avoid them. He said, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And then he says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So there's, it's, not just, it's not just something that we want to do as believers in watching our tone so that we have a dialogue that reflects. We want to be careful of those who are not practicing that because that can be damaging to the church. It can cause division. But if our hope rests in Jesus, our words can be peaceful. They can be gentle, they can be reasonable, they can be merciful, impartial, and sincere. So a hope in Jesus transforms our tone. And we see that here in Paul. Secondly, a hope in Jesus, it transforms our testimony. And that's what we see here with Paul's testimony. God gave Paul an audience 
with the governor and his wife, right? Of all people, God was good enough to give Paul this kind of an audience to speak about his faith in Christ. And so on one hand, we can stand back and we can wonder at how amazing or what terrifying that would be, right? But there would also be a temptation if we were put in that position to maybe water down, right? And delude the gospel message, especially since it tells us that Felix's wife here was Jewish. So Paul might have had that temptation of like, hey, just be careful of what you say. Be careful of the words that you use. I mean, be truthful, but maybe not too truthful. You know, there's going to be some triggers here that, that I want to try to avoid because God has given me this opportunity. So, you know, maybe, maybe we can just kind of bypass, you know, sort of the, the, some of the more, you know, pressing, you know, uh, detail, you know, the more pressing words that are contained in the gospel message. But we don't see Paul doing that because since Paul's hope in Jesus had transformed his tone, he was able to speak both the truth and the grace contained in his testimony of the gospel. I mean, look at what Paul communicates to Felix. I mean, it's, it's kind of nutty. It, he talks about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment just to keep everything really fun, right? Um, that's a lot different than saying, hey, Felix, all you got to do is accept Jesus in your heart and everything's awesome. That was not the message of, of Paul, right? I mean, do you see what Paul covers here? The righteousness of God, which would have led him to talking about the unrighteousness of mankind, right? He talks about self-control, which would have been a huge knock against the hedonistic culture that the Romans practiced. And then when he gets to the coming judgment, it would have brought Paul back to talking about repentance and faith in Jesus because of God's wrath against sin. I mean, I mean, the guy just wasn't like chatting about like, you know, who won the game on Sunday night right here. But Paul's hope in Jesus had transformed his testimony. And the result was that he gained an audience with Felix for two years. So this is what we know. We know that the message of the gospel offends. It's an offensive message, but the manner in which we speak the gospel should not, right? That's why our testimonies need to be filled with the hope of Jesus. They need to be filled with the hope of Jesus. So when you, you take a walk, a long walk in the hot sun, and we've had some hot sun, and my wife loves to take long walks in the hot sun while I stay back in the air con, um, but you can enjoy the heat if you have some water to stay hydrated. But without that water to stay hydrated, you're just going to bake, right? You're just going to bake. And at some point, um, that walk, all that exercise you're getting is actually not going to be healthy. It's not going to be good for your bones. It's not going to be good for your cardio if you don't have any water to keep you hydrated. It's our hope in Jesus, I need you to hear me on this, that hydrates our words. It hydrates our words, right? Because we can't just speak truth, we gotta speak truth with what? Grace, yeah. So a hope in Jesus though, which is what Paul had and is what we have if we've been saved by Christ, we have a transformation that happens with our tone and with our testimony that allows us to speak the truth with grace, and it also, thirdly here, transforms 
our timidity. Or for some of us that have a propensity towards being timid when it comes to the gospel and it comes to our faith. Now, it would be hard to ever accuse Paul of timidity. I mean, this dude was a beast, right? He just seemed to speak the truth. He didn't just, he never seemed to back down in, 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 like in, in a good way, in the way that still showed a lot of grace. But he didn't seem to be very timid. But I would say that he had to have been tested here, right? As Felix kept him in prison for two years after their first encounter. Two years. I mean, this brother has a convo with the governor and this guy just keeps him around to chat like on Wednesday afternoons for two years, right? I mean, can you even imagine that? Can you imagine two years of wondering what God was doing and why he was doing what he was doing? Some of you can. Some of you are in situations where you're like, yeah, I've been wondering what God's been doing for 10 years, for five years, for two years. But imagine Paul locked up, not knowing what was going on, not knowing what God was doing. I can only imagine the temptation that Paul may have felt to just say what Felix wanted to hear, to maybe just find some money to pay him off. Felix was known for taking bribes from prisoners so that he could kind of work the system a little bit and let them go. I can imagine him just saying like, man, let me get back to my life already. Like, what is this? Like, God, this is how, this is what become of my life. I just meet with this governor occasionally and that's what I'm doing. Like that, that's what all of these years and all of this work and all these letters that I've written and all these churches that I've planted, like that's what it's led to at the end here. Can you imagine Paul saying that, the frustration? Well, you, you can, except for this was Paul's life, to be a bold ambassador for Jesus wherever Jesus puts him, to be courageous to develop patience, to develop endurance. God, give me patience. Okay, start waiting. That's what happens to us. And by the way, you don't have to pray for that. He's just gonna do it for you. You know the old cliche, don't pray for patience because you might get what you asked for. Yeah, he's just gonna do that anyway. He's just gonna roll you out and have you, have you wait, right? But Paul learned how to persevere in these moments. Timidity bucks up against all of that. It bucks up against courage and patience and endurance and perseverance. Paul had some things to say about this to uh, Timothy, which was this younger pastor that he mentored. And this is what he said to Timothy, talking about some of these things. In uh, 2 Timothy 1.6, he said, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, right? So it's not just fear so that I can just make really bad decisions, but it's fear that has power and love and self-control as its parameters and guiding influence, right? So that's what Paul is encouraging Timothy. So this, this is what he says. He says, therefore, he said, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't back away from it. Don't, don't, try to be, don't, try to, don't try to maneuver your words in a way that is only about self-protection, right? Which is what a lot of us can do. He says, 
Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me, of his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us, who called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, Paul says, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Do you see the hope that's infused in Paul that he is encouraging his, his, his uh, Timothy, who he was mentoring? Paul's hope in Jesus, it guarded him against timidity. Isn't that interesting? Paul never thought he was standing before Felix alone. He knew the Lord stood by him, which we learned last week in Acts 23, 11. The Lord was standing by him. And it was the hope and the promise and the reality of that that actually transformed the way he spoke, what he spoke, and his ability to speak it without fear, right? I remember I had, a, I had an old friend back in the day dude named Kurt Johnson, 350 pound African-American dude. And um, I gotta tell you, man, uh, I never felt timid when I was around this guy, right? And we, we hit the road, we did some traveling. And um, you know, if we ever went into kind of a, a dicey area or a dicey place, I don't know, I just felt like, I just felt like the boldest guy that ever lived, right? Because I had Kurt right there. I, I mean, I, I had Kurt, Kurt was a friend to me. Kurt wasn't going to let anything happen to, well, at the time, 140 pound Ronnie Martin. Boy, I miss those days. Um, but I had a confidence. If I had any timidity, the minute I was with Kurt, it vanished. It vanished for sure. Paul wasn't timid because he remembered who held his hope. He remembered who was walking with him. He remembered who was with him. How often do we just forget? Do you forget that? Do you forget that when you walk out of here today, you, you, you have Jesus walking with you. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you inside. Like you are the least alone person that has ever existed, all of you. You're the least alone people on the face of the earth besides all of your other brothers and sisters that are part of the church. Paul carried that with him and it was something that gave him a deep and abiding hope. And it mirrors the same hope that Jesus had. Jesus wasn't timid either. He trusted his father. He knew that every step he took on this earth was taken with the love and the grace and the presence of God, his father. And by the way, when Jesus was silent, he wasn't being timid either. And when Jesus made a defense, he wasn't being argumentative or abrasive because it doesn't only matter what we say, it matters how we say what we say. You can speak the truth like a bully, but then the truth is only true on paper, right? A lived out truth comes from a hope in Jesus. And that hope, it transforms some things. It transforms tone, testimony, and timidity. Because in the end, listen, our lives are giving a reason for the hope that lies within. While doing it with gentleness and respect, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3. So a gospel-centered life 
is one that is saying, there is a God of hope that changes the way I see myself, that changes the way I see you, and it changes the way I see the world. So instead of being argumentative, my hope in Jesus leads me to being peaceable. Instead of being abrasive, my hope in Jesus leads me to being gentle. Instead of being manipulative, my hope in Jesus leads me to being reasonable because this is the way of Jesus. And because it's the way of Jesus, listen to this, it doesn't exchange truth for grace or grace for truth, right? Because truth without grace leads to arrogance and self-righteousness. I'm just gonna say that maybe three more times. Okay, one more time. Truth without grace leads to arrogance and self-righteousness. Let's talk about the flip. Grace without truth, on the other hand, leads to ignorance and self-delusion. Both those things need each other. They need to be infused. It's what we saw in the words and the life and the example of Jesus who Paul mirrors here. The problem with truth without grace and grace without truth is that they both deny the, like the fullness, the wholeness, the roundness of the gospel. A gospel that says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ because of what his great love and grace. So neither a, a, a graceless or a truthless Christian carries with them the kind of hope necessary to make a cheerful defense like what we see here today. So we strive for both because hope in Jesus has made both possible. And you know what? Jesus will help us in this. I don't have the full percentage of grace and truth. There are times when I'm with people that my, my truth meter is just pinging into the red. You know, and I just want to, man, I just want the words to be true and, I, and, and I'm more like a hammer. And then there's other times where I get around people and I'm very timid because I, I know something maybe about their life story and, I, and I'm too afraid of offending. So I go into this mode where I'm feeling a little sh ashamed of the gospel. And so I, I just kind of eggshell around it. But Jesus will help us in those percentages that we're never gonna have a perfect balance of. He'll help us if we humble ourselves by confessing our lack of either one, right? Has your hope in Jesus transformed your tone, your testimony, your timidity like it did Paul's? Because I think we can pray that it will for the sake of Jesus who loved us to the point of death so that we might have a hope that death can't destroy. So I just want to take a few minutes. I want, I want to pray that God would um, remind us of that hope that we have in Christ. As we're facing these times where disagreements can shatter relationships. And in Paul and in Christ, man, we see a different way. And that's, that's what I want us as a church to walk into. That's the way and the path that I want us to, to walk down imperfectly, 
but striving towards. You guys hear me on that? Let's pray. God, we thank you that we are not people who are without hope. Even in our grief, you've told us we don't grieve without hope. And in fact, it's this hope in Jesus that allows us to be transformed in all of these different ways. So God, as we read through Acts 24, very briefly this morning, God, we thank you that in Paul, we see an example um, that was mirrored to us by Jesus that shows us it's possible for us. With the testimony that we carry of the gospel to express it in a way that is kind and loving and shows grace and truth and it guards us against timidity and it guards us against harsh tones. And so God, as we find ourselves in the communities that you've placed us in, Lord, I pray that you would transform us, but transform us by hope. Remind us, Lord, that you have defended us. Remind us that when we're in situations where, man, we feel that defensive posture coming up because of the words that are being spoken, that you would give us a grace in that moment to remember who it is that is standing beside us, who it is that is indwelling in our hearts, Lord. We have Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the approval of God the Father because of Christ's work on the cross. Lord, let that change and transform us. We look around and we know that we are living right now in times that are so shaky and people's lack of hope is driving them in all kinds of strange directions. But God, we, as the church, Lord, we wanna be reminded of who we are. We wanna be reminded of what we have. We wanna be reminded of the hope that lies within us, not a dormant hope, not just a word that gives us some self-help principles to guide us through the day, but we have a living hope. So God, would you make yourself known and alive to us today as we scatter? Would you infuse us with a joy because of who we are and what lies in our future, which is glory. We thank you for this, Lord, and we pray that you would hear our voices now as we sing of your hope and your help to us in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.